Hi, this is JR from Design Museum Everywhere. I'm the exhibitions manager and editor for our We Design book that is dropping this year. We Design has taken on several different forms. You may have seen the in-person free exhibitions in schools and public buildings or our online virtual exhibition. Now, with your support, we're producing a book. It will feature 41 design stories of designers who refuse the confines of white supremacy and are creating innovative spaces, products, systems, and strategies at the forefront of contemporary design. We believe design can change the world. If you believe in the transformative power of design, we ask you to join us in lifting up the powerful and innovative voices of BIPOC, female, and gender expansive designers and back this project to bring this new book to life. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org for more details and keep an eye out for the We Design book coming soon. Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Every week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and we interview a guest about their work in design. Because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're talking about how to design the workplace to be more of a learning environment. Joining us today as our guest co-host is Elizabeth Lowry, Principal and Director of Interior Architecture at Elkis Manfredi Architects. Our special guest is Michael Horn, a speaker and author whose work explores the future of education. Before we dive in, I wanna thank you, our members, for supporting all that we do at Design Museum Everywhere. You can become a member and you'll receive access to our monthly design events, our live podcast recordings, plus you'll get Design Museum Magazine. We've had recent themed issues about design and policing, healthcare design, workplace, and appropriately for this episode, our current issue is all about education. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on membership. And with that, onto this week's topic. When you think of workplace, you might think, oh man, this is the final frontier. You've spent years in school, maybe you've had some internships, you've studied abroad, you gain all these skills and experiences that will hopefully help you carve out your own career path. But what does it look like for a workplace to be a place where you can continue to grow and learn? I'm joined by our guest co-host this week, Elizabeth Lowry. Elizabeth is the Principal and Director of Interior Architecture at Elkis Manfredi Architects. She's also on our Board of Directors here at Design Museum Everywhere. She earned her Bachelor's of Interior Architecture from Auburn University and has an Honorary Doctorate of Fine Arts from the Massachusetts College of Art and Design. Boston Real Estate Times included her on their 2021 list of 10 Outstanding Women in Commercial Real Estate, and Boston Magazine named her among the 100 most influential Bostonians in 2021. Boutique Design called Lowry a maverick and silo buster. Elizabeth's recent design work focuses on workplace design to enhance organizational performance and firm culture. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Sam, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for that nice introduction. Oh, you make it easy with all these great things you're doing. There's so much you and I can talk about. I love this topic. I know you come from a family of artists. How does art impact the way you think about interior architecture and workplace design? Well, I just got back from Mexico where I spent a week with my father in his studio reviewing his last year and a half work of pandemic work. Art is the beginning of everything for me. 
You know, you start with a, a concept, a feeling, what you're trying to communicate, whether that's art on a canvas or architecture and interior design. One of these days, we're going to have an episode where we don't talk about the pandemic. I can't wait. But it has totally shaped, reshaped our world in terms of workplace in the last year. And I know, you know, some businesses are returned to the office, some aren't. I saw somewhere that you said, you know, the workplace is no longer a mandate. It's a magnet. So can you talk to us about what that means and how you're seeing this shift? The pandemic has given us license, this is the silver lining, to redefine, rethink, recalibrate, redo the things that we were doing. And now as we're entering the knowledge economy, we're being allowed to rethink, but really we're trying to take it back to the essence of the work. It's the work we're trying to do. And if you're not innovating in this economy, you're going to go out of business. And so how do you innovate? You learn. And I think that learning in the workplace is going to be huge in this next chapter. Yeah, I agree. I keep thinking about, and this is a term that's come up in the Center for Workplace Innovations, that work that we've done together, the summit of like a workplace as a service, a workplace as something that you actually want to go to. I think about in terms of there's some things that every business, maybe not every business, but many businesses have something that you have to do in person. You know, for us at the museum, it's like build exhibitions for a biotech company. It might be like a lab that you're not going to do at home. How have you reframed this thinking, I guess, in terms of like, how do you make the workplace a place where you go to get things that you can't just get at home? And I think, you know, one of those is certainly learning, but I'll leave it to you as you're thinking about this, how how are you sort of reframing the office in that way? Well, I think you said it. The workplace is no longer a mandate. Therefore, it must be a magnet. Mm -hmm. And with all of our clients, we're helping them figure out what is their magnet because it's going to be different for every culture, every company, which brings me back to this learning thing. When When you ask people, why will they stay at their job? Why are they engaged? What is it? Is it just the money? Is it the workplace? Is it whatever? And it always comes back to learning and mentoring. So there's a race now for giving people knowledge, which then can be applied to the work and so forth. So to the magnet, it's making it a place for learning. Yeah, I love that. It's like the workplace is like a school that we're going to go to, to learn from each other, learn from experts. Exactly. People in the workforce today basically report that the thing that keeps them there, retention and growth, is that ability to increase knowledge. In your mind, you're constantly thinking about this stuff. What's your vision? What is that process of combining workplace strategy and a learning environment? Like, how can that look? There's a lot of things about how that can look. And of course, it'll look different in every place. The way to find the answer to that is the co-creation process, which we use at Elkis Manfredi. And I think the process you go through is so critical to the outcome. So when you engage people and you create investment in stakeholders, then you build excitement and ownership versus if you just do it, you get revolt because people don't like things done to them, they want to do it together. So that process of co-creation helps build or find, uncover the uniqueness, those special qualities about your culture, the things that make it your company's place and nobody else's place and make it that magnet that people want to go to because they've helped create it. They created their own destiny. Can you kind of dive into like how that actually works? Like how do you kind of kick that off with a client I'll start there. I want to dig into more of the co-creation, but how how does it start? Sort of what does that process look like? 
well, I, I can tell you when we talk about it with clients, often they get like deer in the headlights of <laughs> you're not going to ask all those people, you know, what they want. And we have to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not that. It's a strategic facilitated conversation about what will make you the individual human being more engaged, more productive, more challenged. And when you apply it to the work, you get the answers that you're looking for. You know, I think people are smart. So it's building that strategy, starting with the vision and mission of the enterprise, right? Because if you work there, you have to agree with that mission and vision. That was going to be my next question around this was like, as you're doing these sort of like co-creation sessions and they're facilitated, you're thinking, I'm sure, about, you know, what the physical space will look like. But I wonder if you're ever surprised or if like company leadership is ever surprised that you're also uncovering the culture that they might not even know exists. Well, that's why the process is so incredibly valuable. It touches so many different aspects. It's much more than just what the space looks like or what the wall color is or those kinds of things. It really is the uh, taking the temperature of an organization and building that teamwork, all rowing the boat together. All right, I want you to imagine you're no longer the design firm, you are the client. What would you want your learning environment to look like? Like what sort of elements would you bring from a interior architecture standpoint, from a culture standpoint to generate a workplace that supports and values learning? You took me to a place of, I was recently seated at a dinner next to the a woman who had been the head of literacy for the Oakland School Department. And I started talking to her about learning and the environment in which you learn. And she took me back to maybe the 70s and the open classroom kind of thing and the, the suite of space types and choices and talking about children self-selecting the type of place that they wanted to do whatever task they were doing or type of learning. And it was the light bulb went off in my head and it was like, oh my God, that's exactly what we're talking about all these years later in the workplace. So I'm so excited to dig deeper into that. Yeah, with our guests, because yeah, I think there's a lot to learn from, you know, there's a lot to let go of like bad school design and bad learning environment design. But yeah, Michael's definitely looking at the cutting edge of what, you know, what's possible. But I agree, like shifting spaces to be more, you know, maybe more like an open classroom or more like a project-based learning environment, again, that you can't get at home. Exactly. So then that, that you know, in our work, we've been thinking, how do you have this conversation with clients and trying to break it down into very simplistic ways of thinking about it? in terms of what are the three most basic types of learning, you know, visual, spatial, second is auditory, and then the third is the kinesthetic, tactile, or problem-based, project-based learning. And that becomes the suite of space types that you have to address in your environment, right? Because you're, you're trying to create that magnet and people are going to come when they can do that activity better in the workplace than they can at home. So if you look at those three types of learning, then you have to design the spaces that are providing support to do those types of learning. Right. The office needs to be purpose-built, you know, purpose-designed beyond just, again, what I can get sitting at home at my desk. It's got to be collaborative. It's got to be learning-based. Well, last year or two years ago, right, 
the typical office was one seat for one person. And you sat in that seat six hours a day, unless you got to go to a meeting, but you were asked to sit in that one seat, which I think is kind of like the way we teach people now in elementary school, you sit in that seat all day. And so now the new conversations we're having is throw all that out, right? Because you don't need to sit in that seat anymore. You're doing that timesheet at home. What are you doing? And let's give you the choice, right? The agency to pick what is form follows function. Really? Yeah. When I think about it for Design Museum, I think about, well, A, I think we've sort of exhausted any social capital we had prior to the pandemic. And so we have to come together at certain points. We can do the day-to-day work at home and apart. It's how do we work through issues and challenges? How do we activate new opportunities? Those are really difficult things to do just over Zoom disconnected. Like you got to be together. You got to hash it out. Right. And if you care about innovation, you have to care about proximity because we, what we've learned is the individual is productive, the enterprise, maybe not so much. And so it's fascinating now to see like Jamie Dimon, JP Morgan saying, you're all coming back. To me, that's extreme. I mean, we had at Design Museum work from home Mondays for years prior to the pandemic. And it was sort of around the same idea of like, there is work that is focus-based that you don't want to be bothered. And many of us like wrote proposals and did emails and writing on that Monday. Of course, that's maybe flipped around (laughs) now, but we do need to bring, I mean, this is me talking about Design Museum. We're actively talking about how do we, you know, multiple times per year come together as a group very frequently and regularly so that we can do those things. Exactly. It's no surprise. We've interviewed probably 8,000 people through different companies now. And six months ago, the question is, why will you come back to work? And the answer was to be with people, to see my colleagues, the kind of social community side of it. Mm -hmm. When we've just done it in the last month, guess what the answer is? To be with people, the social, the community, all of that. So there's power in proximity. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. I love how you think about this stuff because you are co-creating and working with so many, so many people. So thank you. Listeners, to see more of Elizabeth's work, visit elkismanfredi.com. We'll post a link and Elizabeth, stick around and we'll bring Michael Horn into the conversation after a quick break. Design Night Live is back. Join us on Saturday, September 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern for a night filled with all things design. Design Night Live is a Saturday night filled with prizes, familiar faces, networking, a silent auction, and more. We have the amazing Design Matters host, Debbie Millman, as our keynote speaker. During this interactive virtual event, attendees from all over will come together to celebrate design and the effect that storytelling has on all of us. We'll be sharing the vision and impact of Design Museum everywhere and hear from designers from around the world about how storytelling can be so transformative. Join Design Museum everywhere for a night filled with inspiring company and incredible prizes. Get your tickets today. Visit designnightlive.org. See you there. We're back and we're joined by our special guest, Michael Horn. Michael is a speaker and author whose work explores the future of education. Currently, he is a senior strategist at Guild Education. He's also the co-founder of and a distinguished fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation, a nonprofit think tank. His podcast, Future You, that's the letter U, with Jeff Salingo, discusses what's next for higher education. His Future of Education YouTube channel dives into topics of education with experts. Michael was selected as a 2014 
Eisenhower Fellow to study innovation in education in Vietnam and Korea. Tech and Learning Magazine named him one of its 100 most important people in the creation and advancement of the use of technology in education. What a list. Michael designs and creates a world where all individuals can build passion and fulfill their human potential in education. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, Sam. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you. Oh, it's great to have you. I mentioned in your intro, you're an author, co-author of multiple books and articles on education, an award-winning book, Disrupting Class, How Disruptive Innovation Will Change the Way the World Learns, and an Amazon bestseller, Blended, Using Disruptive Innovation to Improve Schools. Can you tell us about what your work has uncovered? <laughs> I'm sure a lot, but this is my million-dollar question here. What have you uncovered in terms of like the ways that we learn? Yeah, I mean, I think the big ideas are that we're all individuals, right? We don't conform to a given set of expectations of what you should be learning on a certain day or what you already know. We all have different background experiences, right? We get exposure to different things in our lives. We have different cultural influences and so forth. And we have different working memory capacities, you know, just to put it simply, right? We absorb different memory at different rates and different capacities and so forth. And as a result of that, if the goal is really to optimize learning for every single individual, you've got to personalize in at least some dimensions. My work really focuses on how do we take a schooling system, you know, and I mean K through career really, that has really been built around standardization, treating groups of students as all alike and saying, how do we get back to the tutoring that we know can be so powerful? How can we get back to unlocking interest through really authentic projects that allow someone to go deep on what's important for them and things of that nature? And, and obviously technology is something that we believe allows us to do a lot of these things at a scale that we haven't been historically. You know, you have Montessori schools, they're great examples of personalization, but they're very high touch, very bespoke. They, they often cost a lot, right? And, and then you have tutoring, but we know that's prohibitively expensive for the majority of us. So how do you start to take a lot of the principles from those realms and really scale it using the technology that's here today? Really, I think to enhance the uh, opportunities for collaboration and, and communication between peers and teachers. Yeah. Could you share some examples of technologies that sort of you're looking at or you've seen out there that allow for some of this personalization optimization? Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of stuff out there. I think you can get from the super simple to the super complex pretty quick, but I'll just tell you some of the things that I'm super excited about right now are in, in the realm of mobile learning. So, you know, the opportunity to use, say, Duolingo to learn the basics of a language, not going to make you conversational. You're going to then want to connect with someone who actually speaks the language, but super simple app, right? Quantic MBA program. It's literally the best way I've ever experienced to learn. It's incredibly motivating. You're answering a question every seven to eight seconds. So you're super engaged and it's giving you personal feedback on, Hey, what are you understanding? What are you not? And then again, it wraps around all these other supports and opportunities to do deep dive projects and actually apply the knowledge in robust ways. I'll give you one more that has been fun for me, which is uh, this new company called Learn to Win. And they're working with a lot of sports teams and some military applications, but basically using this idea of active personalization in a mobile form to help players, you know, learn playbooks significantly faster, for example, and stuff like that. Like NFL quarterbacks for decades have, you know, study your book and like they go through this arcane process. Well, what if you could greatly accelerate that 
so that you could spend your time really getting reps on the field with your teammates. And so that's what they're doing. I just love this. It occurs to me in your world, you use the word learning. And in my world, the word is management, right? They're really the same kind of thing as how do you manage or coach your team, your employees, your talent, and how do you teach? And these things are just coming together and it's thrilling. You know, it's interesting you said that actually, because Clayton Christensen, who is, who is my mentor, of course, he always ended his class with this famous sort of last class of applying his theories of innovation to personal problems that you might face in your own life, not management problems. But he would end it with this vignette of him as the CEO of this company he had started before it went public and before he became an HBS professor. And him realize, like looking at one of his employees at the company picnic or something like that and with her family and so forth. And all of a sudden having this realization that as her manager, if he treated her badly on a given day, then she would go home and treat her kids and spouse badly and like the ripple effects. And he always ended with this incredibly powerful line where you all choked up where, you know, he said, and and therefore I think management is the most noble profession Mm. uh, in the world, if you think about it, because of that importance on on human relations. And I think you just tied the knot, right? Learning is the same thing, like teaching and learning. It's not about the delivery of the material. It's really about cultivating that individual to help them realize their potential. And it's, it's much the same, I think, in management. We do work for major universities and we do work for corporate America. And our corporate clients, all they want to do is know what the universities are doing, right? What are they doing? And our university clients, all they want to know is what is corporate America doing? Everybody thinks the other one knows something. That's right. That the other one doesn't. And we see this every day. So I'm spending most of my time with Guild Education, as Sam mentioned up front. And and Guild is a company that essentially works with large employers to basically make their education benefit program a strategic advantage. So as opposed to this cost center, right, where you're, yeah, we'll give you some benefits to do some degree completion or something like that. Let's actually drive real strategic goals around attraction, retention, upskilling. You know, what do your employees need to take next steps in their lives so that they can be better for you, but also you're a more exciting place to work. And I think this crosses lots of different bounds. So just, we see the same thing. Like we have a lot of academic partners and all the university presidents, they just want to geek out with the employers, right? And like, what are you learning? And the employers, they just want to geek out with the university presidents. So I think your observation is spot on. What's so interesting, I think about the broader work though, is that universities today don't actually credential all the learning that goes on every single day in the workplace. Like you're constantly a learning machine for through everything you do, just we don't formally recognize it as such. And so one of the interesting things for us is how do we take the work you're doing and understand the learning that has happened through it and actually start to be able to help our academic partners give credit even for that, but then to give specific classes or experiences, right, to take that next step of upskilling to help you climb the ladder and, and, and pursue your own goals and so forth and really help show career paths for employees because you all know there's a huge war for talent right now coming out of the pandemic, the recession and so forth. I don't think it's going to be enough just to pay better salaries. I think people want purpose-driven work, work where they can see a career unfold for them. And so making the learning and the work really part of a very tight circle that just reinforces each other, I think is going to be incredibly important. Right. And our research is is mirroring exactly what you just said. The number one thing for young employees is over anything when you talk about retention is 
knowledge acquisition that is more important than networking and money. It's that access to knowledge. Yeah. And it makes sense, right? I mean, like if you went back 70 years ago when healthcare benefits really became a thing, we were still largely in a physical economy. Now we're in a knowledge economy. You want to improve the asset that's going to help you get ahead. It's your brain. Right. Exactly. And when we work with our clients, use lots of words, but our job is to bring those words to fruition. What do they look like? So when we talk about choice and all of this, so my question for you is, what does the perfect learning environment, learning in the workplace, what might that look like? Yeah, I, I've been thinking a lot about this since uh, you sort of gave me a heads up, you might ask this sort of a question because I think it's so specific, right, to the purpose. And, and when I wrote that article for you, Sam, we thought a lot about like, what's the particular activity you're doing? And then how do you shape the environment to match that? And I think that's true as you think about learning in the workplace as well, right? There's certain sets of activities that will occur best when you're one-on-one with, you know, your mentor perhaps, or, you know, you're working online. But some of that activity can clearly benefit when you when corporations actually set up spaces where a bunch of you might be learning together. And yeah, we've got our headphones in, but it's kind of like the gym. We're all doing this together, right? And uh, it creates this ethos that it's not something I have to sneak away on the side and do my degree completion here or do my short boot camp here. It's something like we all get to do together and we all motivate. And so I think building spaces where that learning can occur. So it's no longer large lecture halls, but it is you know open spaces where, hey, we're all going to be learning together and really curating that and intentional ways. I think the second thing that comes out of that is a lot of the learning occurs through authentic projects that I'm doing for work. But sometimes we might want to do projects that are disconnected from today's day and work to build a bigger you know, muscle or principle or whatever it is that I can apply to a range of other things. And so breakout rooms, project rooms, things of that nature, you know, perhaps even maker spaces in companies themselves, depending on what we're talking about, are going to be incredibly important that I can reserve, jump in there and work with a cohort of a few other folks. And, and I think that's the other thing we're learning throughout all this is that cohort is incredibly important. For working adults, you need flexibility you need convenience. You need to be able to do it on their hours. They need to be t- able to tailor it. So it's not going to be the case that Thursday, 2 p.m. is going to be like, if you don't make this time, you're out of the class sort of thing. We need more flexibility than that. But we need to pair that with the benefits that come from a cohort where it's a group of folks that are building relationships, getting to know each other. And so those things are in tension with each other, that rigidity and yet flexibility. But I think the places that do it really well will figure out that balance and give just enough flex to meet the working adult and put you in a meaningful community that motivates you and, and, and builds, frankly, all the learning and insights from others around you. Amazing. So when you talk about cohort or community, what is the right size number of people? That is a terrific question. You know, I'm not sure I I know the answer to that. I will say, I think a lot of these new startups that are coming along, like OutSchool, for example, I'm super interested in the K-12 space. There are equivalents that I'm just blanking the name on. The guy who founded Udemy has one in the adult learning space. And they're pretty small. Like they're, you know, we're talking like four to 10 people, these, these classes. They are not large groups. I suspect you could get a little bit bigger than that because I think I've seen certain class environments have 200 
200 people, but they're doing a lot of dividing so that you're in small project groups. That's your cohort. And then it creates some very cool accountability because you don't want to be the one project team that lets down the other group when you come to pair up and share out and so forth. And then you have to you know, share out to the lar- larger group. And so creating all those, all those things we know about social dynamics, where it creates peer-to-peer accountability... I think that's a lot of what you want to leverage in this design. And so there's probably not a magic number. It's more like, okay, this is our number. How do we now design to create those magic effects of peers holding each other accountable, of motivating, of pushing each other, being able to share insights and so forth? You know, I will tell you for a case study at Harvard Business School, we got 90 people in a class. It, it actually works pretty well. I, I think it may be a little bit bigger than it has to be, but like it actually works pretty well. You get a lot of different insights coming into a question. For a certain other design where you're actually working on a project, you probably want to be no more than four people because otherwise you're all of a sudden managing a big sprawling group and the competencies you're developing are probably around management, important to the, your earlier point, but maybe not the ones you actually want to be developing in this particular work stream. Give us some places that do this well. I'm super intrigued with uh, what Southern New Hampshire University is doing. And, and I'll say it on a couple fronts. You know, they have a very robust set of online offerings. Some are what we would call competency-based, where students only move on when they've actually mastered the objective. And so instead of 120 credit hours, they have 120 competencies to master, which they do so through projects. And then there's basically knowledge banks that they can tap into and learn. They have more traditional online courses as well in different programs. But they do some really cool things where they partner with organizations on the ground to be able to offer it in person. So it's an online learning, but now they have the duet program in Boston near where I am in Lexington, where you get an in-person mentor or teacher who's actually there to say like, you know, you didn't show up for the meeting. We said, you know, this day, what's going on in your home life? Can I help you troubleshoot? Maybe we can line up some babysitting so that you can actually do this project on this particular day or whatever it might mean. But it creates a cohort around that. A few years ago, Southern New Hampshire acquired uh, LRNG, which was a nonprofit that did a lot of online training around social emotional skill development. But what came with that was a bunch of centers around the country. So Philadelphia, Chicago, and so forth. And I just think it's going to be really interesting because I'm convinced that the future of this world is not online only. I'm convinced it's going to be bricks and clicks. And I'm convinced though it's not going to look like lecture halls or mass auditoriums that enable one-to-many delivery of content, but more of these sort of, it's a, it's taboo to say this as well, but more like WeWork facilities sure. uh, um, that pair with the learning and, and do a really good job of fostering community. Those are sort of the partnerships that I'm really interested in. 2U does some really interesting work with this, with partnerships with, with WeWork and so forth. I've seen other online programs partner with Starbucks. Like, I think a lot of these sorts of things are, are the sort of opportunities we ought to keep an eye on. The word that none of us have used yet is flexibility. That's what you're really talking about is different modes, different opportunities, different delivery methods. So how does the environment, the architecture respond to that with flexibility? I, what, is, what does that word mean to you? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like you think about working adults for the moment, right? And their biggest scarcity in their lives is time. Sometimes it's money, but more often than not, it's time. They have time poverty, if you will, right? They've got work, they've got kids, they've got you know activities outside, they've got maintenance of their lives. Maybe they're juggling multiple jobs in some cases. So you need to be able to be flexible on the element of time, place. You need to be flexible in terms of path 
that a learner might take. Not every learner might start at lesson one and go through lesson 30. They might have already mastered lessons two through six. They can skip that. They might need to double down on lesson seven and spend more time on that, right? And then pace. That is the other is the other flexibility that I think is so incredibly important because we all learn at different paces. And by the way, I'm going to learn something super quick in, in a particular topic area. But then when we get to you know project management, maybe I'm going to slow to a grinding halt because it's just not the way my brain is wired and, and I, I need to spend more time with it to truly master these skills or competencies. And so that that's kind of how I think about it is time, place, path, pace are the big flexibilities that we need to be optimizing around. It probably means from an, you know, a design perspective, we're building specific purpose-built places for these things to occur and then giving the learner a lot of autonomy and a coach alongside them or their manager alongside them to help them optimize into those different spaces. Exactly. So two things occurred to me right now. We used to manage big groups of people, right? So it was about the enterprise and everything that you're saying and we're saying, it's starting with the individual. So we've turned everything upside down in in terms of the way we think about it. You start with the the human-centric and build out in, in your learning and my working. And then the other fascinating thing that you just said, you described the physical of building purpose-built rooms for different learning styles or different functions. The art for me in that, in the architecture, is understanding the ratio of those space types and how that flows. And then if you get it right, then the individual chooses form follows function. Yeah, but I think it's 100% what you just said. And like the magic, if you will, coming into a given company that's perhaps trying to do this well is to understand, okay, what are the major things you're trying to build in your workforce right now? What are the major skills? How are those skills best learned? What is the current distribution of talent or skills uh, inside of your organization? And therefore, to your point, like, okay, what is the set of spaces that we need to build around that? What can we repurpose that maybe we already have in place? And how do we intentionally uh, sort of manage those different functions? What is right for one organization, I suspect will be very different for another organization based on current state, strategic objectives, the industry you're in, the set of skills. And, you know, one of the really interesting findings from research over and over again in in, in learning has been what educators think of as learning styles. Uh, So like I'm a visual learner or I'm an audio learner. Those don't actually make a difference in terms of your learning ability. So yes, I might be more strong, you know, from a visual perspective or whatever else, but way more important than tailoring that is to understand what's the skill itself. If it's an intensely visual skill, it doesn't matter if I'm dominant audio, I should learn it through a visual means uh, is what the research continually shows. Now, other differences matter a great deal in terms of the learning is as in like, if I have no background knowledge on a particular topic, English was a second language in my home, my working memory capacity is X and I, you know, have a slight maybe form of dyslexia, then you need to tailor a bunch of other things, right? (laughs) For me. And and then you can change that on the online platform, obviously. But to your point, right? uh, Form follows function. It's true here as well. You're student-centered and the form is following the function of what's the skill we're trying to build and how do we have to create the right environment for an individual then to go pursue and develop that. Right. And how can we afford not to do everything you were just saying in you know, corporate America? What used to happen in 10 years 
right now is happening in six months. So the responsibility the schools and leadership have is just tremendous. Couldn't agree more with that, right? I mean, like we continually talked about the future of work and how automation and technology were going to, you know, wipe out huge things like cashiers could disappear in the next couple of years, right? Like it's, it started during the pandemic and it's only going to accelerate right now. That is a huge swath of talent that is going to be out of a job potentially. But that means also like a huge set of new opportunities and problems for a given business to do more with that talent and be more strategic, right? And so what then are the objectives? And and to your point, like this is urgent. What's the strategic objective we're trying to realize? And for a school, if you want to be relevant, you've got to stay up with the times. Our current issue of Design Museum Magazine is all about education. And we so we did a roundtable interview. And one of the interviewees was on our council, Leah Benami from C-Space. She has this amazing role as director of learning within C-Space. Are you seeing sort of like a pairing of like the space, but then these new roles that kind of have to come in, whether it's like a facilitator or in Leah's case, a director of learning? Yeah, I think we are seeing tentative steps toward that is what I would say. Not nearly enough in my mind. I mean, you know, Sam, like I'm super passionate about this. Like I think design of space just is like almost everything. And you look at America's K-12 classrooms, right? Like, why are we stuck in the industrial model? Well, you got a bunch of schools with egg crates in them and and double-barreled hallways, and like, it's awfully hard to escape out of it. We tried open classrooms, but we didn't marry it with a change in pedagogy and technology. Now we've got the pedagogy and technology, and we have the install base of the old (laughs) classrooms. And so, you know, you can can go into then workforce learning and, and universities. You're starting to see more of that I would say the architecture firms I find that work with universities tend to be pretty good about asking a lot of these questions, but I'm not always I'm I'm not seeing it brought as much full time in as I think might be necessary so that the learning sciences so that they're interdependent. Yeah, like someone who's going to facilitate that really owns this. Yeah, I mean, look, if I was an online institution right now, like predominantly online, like a Southern New Hampshire University, 170,000 students or so now, I would be saying, okay, I think the big differentiator in the future is going to be how we do these bricks and clicks environments, right? And, And how we shape that experience. That means understanding the science of motivation, science of learning, how do we use space? And like, we need to get all of these things working together. Huge strategic advantage if you have that in-house, I think. I was just looking at some interesting numbers. In our research, we're seeing that companies spent 2% of their total payroll costs on training before. And that is quadrupling now. And CEOs are predicting that they're going to be spending huge numbers. 363 chief learning officers around the world carried out by Financial Times, more than a quarter said they intended to raise spending on executive education in 2021. More than two-thirds said they would use internal resources. So that's interesting. The global executive education market grew by 20% between 2014 and 2018. By 2019, the global executive education market was valued at around $2 billion. Pre-pandemic data shows average level of spending in large companies increased from $17 million in 2017 to almost $20 million in 2018. So that's a huge increase. Anyway, so I think it's beginning, right? It's beginning. And I'll, I'll tell you the, the other shift that we're seeing is that uh, historically, most of the education spend has been at the exec and management level. We're starting to see a major shift toward realizing, hey, 
you know, before the goal of management recruitment was like poaching talent from other places, that's a zero sum game ultimately, particularly with the diversity, equity and inclusion lens behind it. When you already have frontline workforces that are plenty diverse, it's just your management ranks aren't. And so companies are realizing, hey, that's a strategic imperative for us. We can invest in our frontline workforce, the non-managerial group and start to move them up. And so increasingly, not as much as we should yet, but increasingly we are seeing employers realize we can't just sort of have that old benefit program on the side and we can't just spend on the top, which they've always done. We're, we're seeing it now enterprise wide in a lot of these places because they're realizing it's the only way to get the talent you need for tomorrow. And keep it. Yes. And, and, and retain it, right? Like the, the cost of replacing someone who's, who leaves is, is huge to an organization. Whereas if you can retain that, the ROI is incredible on, on just investing in the learning to retain someone. You attract better people also if you have a really robust program and you can show them that you stand by their career development. And then they're more productive. Like they're going into management. You've got a more diverse work, uh, you know, management base. You're probably going to be more innovative as a company based on the research. So there's a bunch of impacts that we start to see when you have this thoughtful design uh, up front. I'm curious, Michael, this is kind of a, flipping this a little bit, but from everything you're looking at from schools, put that aside, what elements of the workplace should we move upstream into the school environment? Oh, I love that question. So I'm, I'm super excited about some of these companies like Ripen and Parker Dewey that are starting to harness projects from the workforce and put them into coursework mm. uh, in the actual learning experience. And, and my big takeaway from my book, Choosing College, was that so many students, like career services happens at the very end as like a total afterthought. And they have no idea in the beginning of their college experience or on, on the front end of their learning, what are the career pathways and projects and work that I could be doing to integrate that with the course design itself. I think like, you know, Northeastern does this with the co-op program, Waterloo, where it's alternating semesters, but like embedding it on the front end, I think would be tremendous. Uh, I'll go one step further which is my takeaway from a lot of the work is that there's certain students like they've already done the career exploration when they come to you. So just jump on the conveyor belt, go as quick as possible, you know, great. But there's a bunch of students that don't really know what they want yet. And rather than give them courses, you <laughs> ought to give them like a series of immersive boot camps in different industries where you get to do like 60 day sprints, maybe in three or four industries to be like, is this something I like? Will it work with the lifestyle I want to live? Do I like the people? Can I develop a network, et cetera, et cetera, then make some choices once you know something. That's so smart. Oh, I know a lot of people who could have really benefited from that. I, look, I, I didn't even know what an engineer was until junior year of college. Didn't even understand that it was a thing. So, you, you know, I, I, I think colleges and could, could do better. Yeah, no, agree. And thank you. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing your expertise. It's great. My pleasure. Listeners, to see more of Michael's work, visit michaelbhorn.com and we'll post links to his books and the podcast, which I am going to subscribe to. Okay, it's that time. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll go first. So this week I'm thinking about travel, I guess. And I recently saw these camper trailers that I like fell in love with. Their design's awesome. It's a relatively new camper uh, it's from a company called Happier Camper. They make a couple models, but their main one is the Happier Camper HC1. I love the design. It's sort of like retro cute with like great curves. It's got two-tone color scheme, big windows. It's got a giant big rear hatchback door. 
you know, most campers have that sort of old school vibe that I think we all know of, but they're very boxy. These somehow are like old school and modern at the same time. But my favorite part beyond sort of like the exterior design is the interior is completely customizable and modular. So it's all based on this like cube system. So each cube's like 20 by 20 by 16 inches tall and they nest into the floor like Legos. So you can have the thing just completely be storage and be open and put your kayak in there, bikes, whatever. But you can also pop them up and arrange them. If you put them all up, you have basically like a giant bed and they have like, you know, individual cushions. So you have this like queen size bed or you can pop them up and make like a dining room. There's like little like pop-up table legs and tabletops. There's even a kitchenette that also fits into the cube system. It's awesome. And it can all be changed on the fly. So you could be like, you know, throughout your day, switching it around on the campsite. So the trailer is 72 square feet, which seems tiny, but they had configurations that were sleeping a family of four or even family of five with like this bunk bed cube system. It was so neat. So you can also, of course, yeah, like I said, haul your bikes and kayaks and like get all set up and then change it around for mealtime uh, or bedtime. So I am putting the Happier Camper on my someday wish list. Check them out at happiercamper.com. Okay, Elizabeth, you're up next. Well, I guess I also had travel on my mind. I had the great opportunity of spending the last week in a glass house in the middle of the desert. And thinking about this question, it occurred to me that sometimes good design is invisible, that it was a glass house and I could be with nature. Yeah. And it was, you know, broke all the boundaries and the thresholds and all of that. So I, I think that moment of sometimes good design is it's invisible. And while in that glass house, I was able to take out lots of artwork and books and things. And I got totally engaged with not looking at something as a thing or an object, but looking at it as a composition of color. So thinking about color theory and color strategy and what it is to be a colorist. Mm. Interesting. Gosh, those moments where we can step away, whether in a glass house or not, are just so important for our brains. Oh my gosh. That's that's great. Thank you for sharing. Listeners, if you have a great weekly dose of good design, share it with me and I'll share it on the podcast. So you can tweet or share it with me on Twitter, Instagram. It's easy to find me at Sam Aquilano. And Elizabeth, Thank you so much. This was so fun. I know we scratched the surface of this amazing trend. And so maybe we'll have to do this again and dive even deeper. Well, I hope so. Thank you for having me. This was terrific. I learned a lot. That's our show. I want to again thank Elizabeth Lowry and Michael Horn for joining us. And thank you all for listening. We'll post links to the resources we discussed today on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. If you want to see more from Design Museum Everywhere, check out our traveling exhibition. It's called Bespoke Bodies, The Design and Craft of Prosthetics, which will be free and on view very soon. So it's starting August 16th and it goes through October 10th. So you can see our first in-person exhibition in over a year at the Jossiloff Gallery at the University of Hartford in West Hartford, Connecticut. We're so excited to see you there. You can go to designmuseumeverywhere.org for more details. By the way, please rate and comment on our podcast, leave a review. That means so much to us. You can find us always on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook. And we have an awesome email newsletter that you can sign up for right on our website. 
This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amora Yates with production assistance by Ryan Flom, additional editing support by Emily Roberts, and additional research by Tanya Chabla. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here, and we'll talk again next week.